If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say, so there will always be others that see it differently, and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. Today I wanted to talk to you about a book which many police are aware of, but not so much those outside of policing. The author of the book, uh, Kevin Gilmartin, PhD, He spent 20 years working in law enforcement in the US before beginning a consulting career as a behavioural scientist. As a consultant, he works with law enforcement agencies throughout the US and Canada. Uh, His work in hostage negotiations and police psychology has been recognised with many awards. I don't know Kevin Gilmartin, I've never met him, but due to his reputation, he's taken his message on the road internationally, which is how Victoria Police Association were able to have him visit Australia and talk to about maybe three or four sessions, all full houses of Victoria Police officers a few years back. You may have heard some of my guests talking about his book because it just hits home like no other book I or many others have read. It's uh, a whole lot of things. It's fascinating. It's frightening. 
it's very confronting, uplifting in some senses, but it's probably more confronting, I would think, than any other uh, emotion because it really spells out the damage that working as a police officer uh, can do to our psyche. So uh, Kevin Gilmartin, he's lived policing, he's researched it, he's taught it and he's studied it. And in his role, counselling police officers and their families, what he did was he realised that one of the most critical and ignored areas in law enforcement was the emotional toll that it takes on its own people. If anybody can talk about the emotional toll on policing, on police, it's me. Uh, because it took such a toll on me, I lost my career. But uh, you've heard me talk about that ad nauseum and so I won't go on about it other than to say I am, oh boy, when I say I'm not alone, I have many, too many friends and colleagues that have had the same situation happen. Um it's something, the emotional toll of policing, it's something that I and many others, we bang on about it incessantly. But if you get a chance to read this book, it will highlight the many issues that we as police face. Um, I suppose it might help if I told you the name of the book. <laughs> but the book is called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, A Guide for Officers and Their Families. And as I said, it's by Kevin M. Gilmartin. Uh, the book, it doesn't provide answers uh, and it, it doesn't give any magical remedies, but it does explain why police experience enormous mental health challenges and provides some insight into how to manage them. As I said before, the number of police I'm aware of uh, that I speak with and am contacted by who are psychologically damaged by their policing careers, it highlights the huge problem Victoria Police face. But it's not just Vic Pol, it's police all over Australia and really all over the world. Yes, we've come a long way in the years since I was diagnosed uh, with PTSD in 2012. And, and at that time, not a lot was known about PTSD. And hand on my heart, I'd never heard of it until I was diagnosed. But unfortunately, we're all learning more about it by the day. And I want to also acknowledge that it's not just police who are struggling mentally. It seems at the moment the whole country is struggling, or many of us are struggling, uh, particularly due to COVID. But today, I'm just talking, I'm highlighting the mental health issues with police and, uh, well, and Kevin, Kevin's book. And so I thought what I might do is, is go through uh, some of uh, the chapters in Kevin's book, highlighting some of the points he makes, uh, which I think uh, may, will make me think about my own situation as well. And the first one I wanted to talk about was he speaks about the loss of old friendships, which predate police work. And I'd have to say this could very easily have happened to me, but I worked hard at it, as did uh, my friends and my family. I had and still have a very, very uh, strong bond with my sisters, and I did my mum until she passed away a few years ago. But uh, my beliefs, my morals, um, my goodness, kindness, respect, whatever you want to call it, they were all instilled in my sisters and I since I was only a little girl. What happens in the new role as a police officer, it's, it's very exciting. 
it's fun and your newfound friends that you meet out at the academy and often, you know, are friends for life, what happens is you share a bond like nothing else. Out on the road, what you see, what you hear, what you feel and share, it it binds you. Like, like when something terrible happens and all those involved become, it's almost like we come become joined at the hip uh, through that experience that we've shared. And that happens every single day with the police. And there are so many incidents that I could uh, relay, but the one that sticks in my mind about a bond that, that you share is the story I've told before about uh, Julie, the young woman uh, that... I was working at Carlton and I was only in the job about six months and we got a call to uh, a person that had set themselves on fire and I was with a trainee and I wasn't, you know, very senior at the time either. God, I think, as I said, I think I'd only been out about six or eight months and we went to this job and there was a person on fire in the gutter and I can always remember when we got there, it was like, oh, my God. And you just sort of find this sixth, I don't know, you find some strength from somewhere. And I ran straight to her. I didn't know it was a female at the time. I didn't know who it was. But I will never forget the screams. I will never forget the smell. I will never forget laying or no laying kneeling down next to her and she was black and she we actually had a conversation and I could never understand why but I sought some advice from a doctor and (laughs) not for me I mean I did many many years later but at the time I couldn't understand why somebody that was uh, burnt to you know where I couldn't recognize whether it was male or female how we could have a conversation but the doctor said to me that because all of her uh, nerve endings had been burnt she didn't have any feeling and I mean, I'm not saying it was, you know, a long and involved conversation, but um, it's a long story, but I knew her. I'd had dealings with her previously. And I remember when I knelt knelt down next to her and she said to me, Narelle, it's Julie. I just could not. That's the sort of conversation I mean. I mean, that's what. And. I, you know, I said to her, Julie, what have you done? And anyway, she then sort of lost consciousness and she died a couple of days later. But the trainee that I had with me, I can remember seeing him go white. This is in the div van before we've actually got to the job, as we pulled up to the job, because you could you could hear her screaming. Uh, there was people panicking all around and all that sort of stuff. And I remember... I said, you just stay in here, get the uh, fireys, get the ambos and I'll go to her. Anyway, bottom line is, uh, you know, I don't know, it might have taken half an hour for all this to happen and the the ambos got there There was, and they couldn't do anything. The fireys got there and they sprayed her very, very lightly with um, some water, just a real light spray. 
And I remember after um, they left, and she was alive when she left, but I had pieces of her uh, skin all over my uniform. I stunk and I was directed to go around to her family and tell them that she'd um, what had happened and that she'd gone to hospital. And I remember telling my sergeant, I can't go because, you know, it's so unprofessional how I looked, I smelt. And also what about, you know, the psychological, oh, God, putting that aside, uh, how it had affected me and my colleague. But I, I was um, directed to go and speak to her family and I'll never forget going in there. Like what... <laughs> What a position to put me in, but also what a position to put her family in. And I, I don't think to this day her family knew that, you know, basically I had bits of her on me. Um, but when we got in the div van to drive back to the station, myself and my colleague held hands. We just needed to um, comfort one another, I suppose, it was just that shocking, that traumatic. I just, I think it would have been me that um, wanted to hold his hand. I don't know, but he was very receptive, re- receptive to holding my hand as well. Uh, but it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Like thinking about two police in a div van holding hands, <laughs> you know, and we weren't lovers, like we were just colleagues. It was, but that's, when I talk about a bond, that's what I mean. It, um, it is amazing that bond that you feel. Now, where was I? I've lost my way. Oh, that's right. So we were talking about binding. You join at the hip through the you know, experiences that you share um, and that it happens every day. And I wonder sometimes, was it because that I was a little bit older like I was 27 when I joined and and I'd formed, by that stage, I'd formed very, very strong, lifelong friendships. But I also needed those friends to keep me grounded because otherwise I could very easily have gone off the rails very early uh, due to what I had experienced. Um and, and really, that was only in the first uh, couple of years. I, I experienced some uh, some terrible things in those first couple of years. Um, but I, looking back, I was uh, what twenty seven years. I had been a normal civilian. I'd never been exposed to someone being neglected. I'd never been exposed to somebody burning themselves to the point where they died. I'd never been exposed to car accidents, let alone horrific fatal car accidents. I'd never been exposed to such sad people, such such lonely people, people who'd been assaulted and neglected, abused. I mean, the list just goes on. But, you know, when I used to go and see my friends, they'd say, hey, hey, Nero, what about us? You know, when are we going to see you? And I'd think sometimes, oh, God, I don't have time. Uh, and they they can uh, almost take second place initially because that that feeling when you first join the job, it is so exciting and it's different and it's thrilling. And so when they used to say, you know, can you come out to dinner or we want to see you? So 
I, I would make time to go and see them, but the minute I saw them, it brought me back to reality. And it was actually what kept me, I believe to this day, it's what kept me going. They kept me grounded, my feet on the ground. Uh, they kept um, me, uh, They it made me touch base with reality. And I wouldn't, it, it, it's a completely different conversation that you have with police, with your colleagues, to what you have with your friends who aren't police. And I found it um, almost a blessing. Well, I did, not almost, I found it a blessing. Normal people do not talk all the time about dead bodies, about abused people, about burned people, you know, all that stuff that police see, normal people do not see that every day and it's not in your vocabulary. So it's very, very, uh, I used to find it refreshing for my girlfriends to talk about, I don't know, their car had broken down by the side of the road and some nice person stopped and helped them or, I don't know, the car seat, um, you know, was the wrong one or the new lounge suite that they'd got or, um, I don't know, problems that they were having with their husband or their wife or, um, you know, what colour to paint the kitchen, uh, you know, the I don't know, somebody hadn't fixed a, a cupboard properly, whatever it be. It was just lovely and refreshing not to not to talk about dead bodies. It is not normal to talk like that every day. Oh dear, I'm on a bit of a rock, but I'm on a bit of a roll here, aren't I? Um, so I often, and still to this day, I credit um, my friends and my family with lasting as long as I did in policing. Uh, Kevin Gilmartin also talks about from positivity to cynicism and how we change from uh, in policing, how we change from being so positive in, let's say, the first, no, I don't know, two or three years to then becoming very cynical. Graduating from the academy and learning about another world of violence and those who, you know, had no respect for themselves or others for that matter or others' property, it was eye-opening. And this sort of world or this kind of world makes you feel like you're in a bubble and we start to find ourselves distant and alienated from uh, social networks and friendships which existed uh, prior to joining. And as the years of policing continue, officers can experience social isolation and, say, positive outlooks. And the emotions, those emotions are often replaced by dark, moody, like negative views of the world. And this in turn can turn our private life upside down. My saving grace was the stability in my private life, which had a lot to do with maturity and, as I said before, having those rock-solid friendships. Recruits are often told that the job takes its toll, but they're hardly ever told or shown how to minimise those negative effects of the journey through our police career. Helping us in our private and personal lives, it wasn't part of our training. But now I believe they're honing in on it more because of the large amount of relationships which go south because of how the job has affected the police person, whether, you know, 
whether that be a person's mother, father, sister, brother, I don't know. But anger is very, very prevalent apparently in um, a police officer's home. The only time I really found that anger, I suppose, was um, if somebody, if something had happened at work and I I was frustrated, like it wasn't anger, um, you know, with my husband or my friends, but I used to get very angry about the justice system and it seemed to me that it was based on like technical rules. It wasn't about justice. And, and you know, court decisions were made from, um, oh, these legalistic intellectuals who I didn't believe had any idea what my job as a police officer's, officer was like. Um, the court system and the unfairness made me very angry. And I still feel it's very unfair because it seems to me that if you've got a lot of money, you'll probably, you've got much more of a chance of getting off a charge than if you're representing yourself, God forbid. I don't know if anybody has ever seen anybody represent themselves in court, but I've only seen a couple times and it... uh, Oh, it's hard to hard to listen, hard to watch, um, and it takes three times as long. But oh, gee, the court system—it's just. I suppose the more money you've got, the more time you can, uh, the more money you can give people to spend time to try and uh, get off on a technicality. That is not justice to me. Well, it wouldn't be justice to most most of us, would it? Um, Another thing that Kevin uh, Gilmartin talks about is the battle of street survival versus emotional survival. And in um, he says that in many ways officers are doing well in the battle of surviving on the street, but they appear to be fatally losing the battle of emotional survival. He says that police suicides seem to be becoming more prevalent. Well, Gee, they certainly do. I don't know whether they are becoming more prevalent because of social media, because we're talking about it more like there was a a ban or you just didn't talk about suicide years ago uh, publicly. And, And I understand why they didn't want to do that, but I think now we're realising that being quiet about something and not speaking about something can sometimes do more damage than actually speaking about it. So maybe that's why we're hearing more, but I can't get over them. And I don't hear half of them these days, but, gee, there's a, there seems to me to be a lot of police suicides. It doesn't seem to be subsiding. I don't... We're not, we're doing a lot, but we're not doing enough. Um, Suicide isn't the only form, though, um, of self destruction. And, you know, there's obviously depression, social isolation, the anger that I'm talking about. And it can lead to, well, this is what Kevin says, and it's true, it can lead to the destruction of many other aspects of an officer's lives that aren't readily visible. And then there's the alcohol. Boy, I've got to say, the police have got a huge problem with alcohol. 
I don't know how to get around that because it is also a community issue. But with police, we drink to celebrate catching an offender. We drink when we haven't caught the offender, when we've failed, you know, we have, they've um, escaped or from, you know, the house or whatever it be, but we drink for that. Um, we also drink um, if we've had a rough day. If something's happened at work that's really distressed us, we might go for a few drinks after work. And I know a lot of people go for drinks after work, but for some reason police seem to just, they don't, <laughs> my experience is they can't just have one or two and go home. I think it's a conglomeration of a whole lot of jobs. You know, when something bad happens, everything that has happened in your career, not everything in your career, but all those uh, jobs that you feel um, you haven't uh, managed well or something's really, um, uh, it's in the back of your mind that you can't get rid of. I think that all comes back when you start drinking and thinking about another job that, you know, you haven't gone so well at. So, yeah, we drink after a rough day. We drink when we're not coping uh, with what we've seen or we've heard. Uh, we try and drink to forget. It is embedded in our culture. And that affects intimate relationships too. Um, and you don't want to let your guard down Nobody likes feeling sad, feeling upset or anxious. So what happens is you ignore it or you drink to try and forget it. And as I said before, we are policing. Police, listen to me, we. I say it every time. I can't stop thinking about myself as a police person, yet I haven't been a police person since 2014. Well, a practising police person since I was 2012, since 2012. So isn't it I just can't... Um, I'll always think of it as we. Um, so we are no different to any other member of society. A lot of people drink for all sorts of reasons, but for some reason we drink, I think, we drink to excess. Uh, Kevin also talks about the prevention prior to the problem. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. So he says that rather than counselling after, after problems surface, we need to address the fact of emotional survival before the problem surfaces. So what, what we need, we need to have substance abuse programs. We need to have more counselling appointments. We need to have more psych screenings or more intense psych screenings before an officer is given a gun. Now, the counselling appointments, when you, the police, it's changing now, thank goodness. But way back when I can remember when things weren't going too well uh, for me uh, psychologically, mentally, to try and get to see a counsellor or to speak to somebody from psych services, you'd call, they'd say, look, we'll call you back. But when you ring psych services, you don't want to speak to someone tomorrow or next week or sometimes even next month. You want to speak or you need to speak to someone there and then. Why else would you be ringing? It takes enough to ring a psych service to say, you know, admit that you need help. So we need a lot more counsellors so that when we ring, we can speak to someone if it takes half an hour, if it takes five minutes, it doesn't matter. Um, And the psych screenings before we get a gun, I don't quite know how we would do that because unless when you get um, given a gun at the start of the shift, you don't have to, you could have had a, pardon me, really shit night. You could have had a huge argument with your wife, with your husband, with your kids, with your parents, whatever. You could be feeling like, I can't do this anymore. You can go and get a gun. You don't have to pass anything to get um, a gun allocated to you. You can just walk in, get your gun, and off you go. I don't know how you get around that, but you can access a gun on any shift. That's a, um, a you know, if you're obviously um, a frontline worker. So that's a bit of an issue. Uh, the prevention, we just, we need to do a lot more. Um, the next one he talks about is our perspective changes. And it does. And in the book, Kevin says things like this. So he says, answer yes or no to these first three questions. 
One, do you see the world differently now that you're a police officer? Yes. Do you look at people differently? Yes. Do you read situations differently? Yes. So we do see the world so differently as a police person to, let's say, a, a normal <laughs> normal um, civilian. So an example of this, when I stay at my sister's, I close the blinds and I close them very well. I cross them so that there's not a gap in the middle. Um, and she says, what are you closing the blinds for? And I said, well, what if somebody, like, walks up the, the driveway and looks in your window? And she looks at me and she says, Narelle, that is just ridiculous. Who, who, she says, who is going to walk up the driveway and look in the window? And I am just gobsmacked that she wouldn't think that some uh, – I think it's because I know that people do do that. People, because I've worked on so many cases of prowlers, sex offenders, where, and they don't all turn out to be sex offenders, prowlers, you know, prowl for all different sorts of reasons, but I know that they, uh, you know, go down people's driveways, they look in, in windows. They look in windows for all sorts of reasons. They can look in a window to see who's there. I know, I'm sorry, but far too many offenders that go down and have a look down a driveway, they look in the window and they masturbate watching somebody in the bed. I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. That is true, true to life. But my sister can't, she just doesn't see, well, of course she doesn't see that. And this is what I say to her. How would you know if somebody is walking down your driveway and is looking in? You wouldn't know. Most people don't know that there's prowlers outside. That's why prowlers do what they do. Um, she has got no idea, and I don't expect her to, mind you, she's got no idea what's going on outside. But we do. And that's a problem. So do you see the world differently now that you're an officer? Absolutely. Completely differently. Um, yeah, compare if I compare me to my sisters, a completely different world. Do I look at people differently? Absolutely, I do. If I see somebody, I don't know, with a backpack, I think, what's in that backpack? If I see somebody in a very large, um, heavy overcoat and it's um, 30 degrees, I'd look and think, what's going on there? But I wouldn't just look and, you know, and off they go. I'd then start looking further and I might see, all sorts of indicators to me on that person that there's something very wrong. Other people would might look at that and think, mm, it's a bit weird. What's he doing? Well, I think as police you look into it much more than that. Yeah, so we do look at people differently. 
Do we read situations differently? Absolutely. There is just so many different ways that we see the world. Um, Yeah, I often also think like, again, I've got a friend that's got a a and b and the windows front onto the street and on the front of the, the gate, you know, it's um, they advertise it as a and b So I look at that and I think to myself, it says that it's a and b So anyone, a crook, a burglar, would go past that and think, hmm, the owner doesn't live there. They obviously have people coming and going. Uh, you know, if the lights aren't on overnight, well, you know, there's no one there. Like, it's just – and sorry, and going back to the windows – so the windows uh, face the street and there's no curtains. It's just the blinds are up so anybody can walk onto the front veranda, look in and see what is in that bedroom because the two bedrooms front the street. And I say to my friend, oh, wouldn't, shouldn't you put a blind or something there, like a, a sheer curtain or something? Well, why would you? And I think to myself, well, why wouldn't you? Because <laughs> people, I must, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just a, a different world. Um, it's just, it's just not normal, is it, to think hyper vigilance all the time, thinking about what if, as police pers- people, we do what if. Um, my sister has. Uh, a, she's seen me uh, look at a doll, uh, you know, a, a simple little doll, a baby doll, and absolutely lose it over this doll um, because it brings back terrible um, flashbacks and triggers of jobs that I've been to with little babies. I'm not saying there are other people that would have triggers like that as well, but as police you have so many uh, uh, triggers. Um I suppose we also begin to be distrustful of human nature because Kevin talks about um, being distrustful keeps us as police alive. And it's true. Every single car that we pull over, every single house that we attend, we practice our uh, survival skills that we're taught at the academy. And you cannot afford to let your guard down and trust anyone because that could be the job where you let your guard down that something happens. And the distrust obviously overflows into our personal life. You know, as I've said before, I see things in the street that my friends and sisters would that aren't in the job would never see because it is ingrained in our psyche to always be looking, to always uh, be checking, always make – I tend to sort of – I still want to make sure people are safe. You know, I I could be walking down the street and I see some dodgy character and I might just hang back and watch him thinking if he does this or that, I might, you know, do A, B or C and forget I haven't, um, you know, been a police officer for (laughs) so many years. Um, But you do become very distrustful. Um, I suppose, as I said, did I say before that it's about being on, (laughs) 
every single minute of every single day that you're at work, you're at work, and that is not normal. Unfortunately, we do become two different people too often. On duty, uh, we are we have to be alert. We have to think on our feet. We use we have a lot of humour in the job. We have great com- camaraderie. But what Gil Martin talks about is when a lot of police officers go home, instead of being um, alive, alert and thinking all the time, a lot of police go home and they're very apathetic, they're very detached, they're tired, they're moody, they're angry. And he explains that at work, our world is alive, it's stimulating, it's invigorating, and it is. And off-duty, at home, it can be so different. A lot of people suffer from going home and thinking life at home is, is pretty boring. It's uh, subdued, it's depressing, it's isolating. So a lot of officers prefer to stay at work rather than go home. Uh, you know, yes, we'll often have a few drinks after work, um, which uh, Kevin Gilmartin states is to ward off the emotional drop that hits when the officer uh, moves from on, the on-duty phase of hypervigilance to the off-duty phase. And he says that this is fertile ground for, and it, it is, for inappropriate and high-risk behaviours that can jeopardise the officer personally and professionally. Uh, we refer to drinks after work often as a choir practice, and, and he says, how many choir practices have become launching pads for broken marriages? Well, a lot. How many careers and tragically lives have ended due to uh, cops leaving drinks, their driving is impaired, uh, they're arrested for, um, uh, you know, um, DUI um, on their way home, they crash their cars on their way home. It's just, again, we're drinking. Um Kevin goes through the symptoms of the hypervigilance roller coaster, and he talks about some of the warning signs. Uh, he talks about the desire for social isolation. So we come home, uh, we're non-communicative, uh, which is very rare for me. <laughs> if I'm sad, I communicate. If I'm happy, I communicate. If I'm angry, I communicate. You can't win, um, but. A lot of cops um, become withdrawn and, as we said, apathetic. They will sit in front of the TV. Um, they they don't want to talk to anybody, uh, not they, we. Uh, we don't want to. I found myself with this that when the phone goes, I just can't at home. I feel like, you know, you talk all day and when the phone goes at home, you just can't be bothered. You can't be bothered talking to them because you're tired. Um uh, one of them here is he says it's unwillingness to engage in conversation or activities that aren't police related. I can't say that happened to me, but I know that happens to a lot of other police uh, where, um, you know, you go out socially and, you know, talking to police, it's always 
it's funny, it's, um, oh, my God, really? Uh, oh, did you do that? You know, it is exciting. Um, going out on social events, everyone wants to hear a war story. And to be honest, you get a bit sick of telling war stories, or I did when I was, you know, in the job. Um, now I could tell war stories all day. <laughs> uh, but what happens is, this is what Kevin Gilmartin says, and it makes sense, is that when you start telling a war story, what happens is the adrenaline starts pumping again. And as I said, personally, I found it laborious and it was the last thing I wanted to talk about. But a lot of people do want to hear your worries. Um, as I said, I wanted to talk about normal stuff, nice restaurants, you know, that I'd been to, a show that my friends had been to. Um, he talks about reduced interaction with non-police friends and acquaintances because as with normal people, they all want to complain, and it's true when you go to a party, people want to complain about to you about something that's happened to them uh, with the police, uh, the parking tickets and speeding tickets. Oh, please. I could not count on 10,000 fingers and toes how many people start to whinge about being pulled over. Uh, you know, the offence occurred. They were speeding. You know, they didn't have their seatbelt on. But, you know, you hear all the excuses. But, oh, my God, if I hear one more of those stories. And, you know, I had one person one time, I was at a party, and this man brought up his son, and his son was uh, learning to drive or he just got his licence. And the man brought his son up to me and he said, this is Narelle, she's a policewoman. Now you make sure you stop at the stop sign near her house because otherwise she will um, fine you. Really? Does that bloke really think that on my days off I am going to sit at the stop sign outside my house, take down the registration of every car and make sure they get a notice in the mail or hand-delivered. Seriously? That's the sort of thing that really used to piss me off. And don't start me about when adults teach their little kids about if you're naughty, the police will come and get you and put you in jail. I'd like people to rethink that and maybe say that if ever you're lost or if ever you feel scared, you make sure you go and see a police person because they will help you. Oh, I can't stand that when people make us out to be ogres. Oh, anyway, uh, what else does he say? Oh, yes, um, he talks with the hypervigilance uh, roller coaster again. He talks about young cops find socialising with non-police as mundane and their lives are boring compared to the police officers. And you know what? I can see that. Um, he also talks about officers procrastinating in decision-making when it's not work-related, like an I, don't, I say this a lot and I don't think it's work-related, but maybe it is. So I have to make a decision and I'll say to someone, oh, I don't care, just surprise me. Um, 
at work, you use, and it, it, it's true, every day you're making decisions all day and you come home and you don't want to make a decision about what's for tea. You don't want to make a decision about where you're going to go for dinner. You're just sick of decisions. So that um, response about, well, surprise me, um, and Kevin talks here about where the police person will say, look, I've been making decisions all week. Whatever you want is fine with me. <laughs> oh, so true. Um, yeah, he talks about infidelity. Uh, yeah, and I think infidelity within policing is a lot about that really strong bond that you share. I know in a div van you can you do spend just about eight hours with, uh, well, it was in back in 87, now you spend half the time doing bloody paperwork. However, when you spend a lot of time in the car with somebody um, and sharing a lot of, you know, things that happen and you get back in the car and, oh, my God, you know, how did you feel about this or did you, do you believe when he said or she said that? You share a lot of things and you often share a lot of close things, particularly on night shift. Um, I don't know what it is about night shift, but you do seem to share a lot more personal stuff on a night shift than you do during the day. However, um, Kevin Gilmartin talks about this, the infidelity um, is very prevalent in police officers because of that they share the risk, you know, whatever. They share the bond. They share what they've done. They've shared, oh, my God, can you believe what, what we just did? So it does, it, it it creates closeness. And if you're not careful, it can create um, getting a bit too close. <laughs> um, a lot of police uh, are too tired when they get home where they, uh, they're not involved as much as they should be with um, children's needs and activities. And a lot of police lose interest in things they used to be interested in prior to policing, like they don't have any hobbies or very little uh, or recreational activities. It's really important to do something other than policing just to give you, you know, your mind a bit of a rest. So, as I said at the start, these there's no magic potions here. Policing is a tough job, but I think the message that Kevin Gilmartin is is trying to get across is that our emotional survival is as important as our uh, our physical survival. So. We learn and train how to protect ourselves in the community. What about learning to um, protect ourselves more on an emotional level, on a psychological level? And to do that, we have to normalise and not stigmatise mental illness as just another illness. We need to get rid of that ridiculous notion that um, uh, putting our hand up and asking for help is a weakness. It is actually a strength to say, I need help. That's what we've got to start thinking about on changing our mindset. But that's not just police. That's, you know, that's all over uh, all over the world. Well, look, I, 
I hope this has helped a, a little um, in it's just a fascinating book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, a guide for officers and their families. Personally, I think it's probably more important for the family members and friends to read that book rather than the officer himself or herself because if you as a family member of a police person reads that book, it might just help explain why your husband, your wife, your partner, why they are acting the way they are and maybe you can do something, as Kevin says, you can prevent something happening before it happens and you can go and seek some help or you can just, I just feel it, it is of an enormous assistance to the families rather than the police. Anyway, I hope uh, that helps in some way and uh, have a great week. Thanks. Bye. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A T R E O N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much.